Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. I'm your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And today we have an episode that will serve as our last episode for our Murder in Music series. So we're excited to kind of go down the rabbit hole with you guys. So our story today is about the Troutman family. And if you're not familiar, don't worry, we got you covered. We will fully go into who they were, where they from, the whole bit. But what I noticed while doing this story is that the Troutman family has a lot in common with the Kennedys. And most of you should know the Kennedys. Like, if you don't know the Troutmans, you for sure know the Kennedys. And, you know, being black, we absolutely love the Kennedys. JFK, I mean, I remember my mom told me, like, she went home when he died because they got released out of school early. And my grandmother was just crying. There's a picture of MLK and JFK probably in your great-grandmother's house right now. Right, I was going to say, most people's houses have a Bible, MLK, and JFK. I'm just saying. But the one thing I noticed about the Kennedys, and if you know anything about them at all, you don't even have to go too deep inside of their history to find out that they are pretty much haunted by a ghost that tends to take their families, family members away too soon by mere freak accidents, like things you just can't even really explain. And while I was digging through the Troutman family's history, I found the same ghost. And I just have to say that after doing the Troutman family and finding out more about them and who they were, I just thought that that was very interesting that they had that correlation. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you will understand how I got to that conclusion. But the one thing I can say is that my husband actually introduced me to the Troutman family and this particular tragedy that occurred back in April of 1999. Now, I love all things music, which is why we are featuring music and murder here on Murder in the Black. I love all things music, but you accompany that with history and I am in heaven. So my husband watches a lot of documentaries on YouTube. And he brought this one to my attention because he absolutely loves funk music. And funk music has its roots in West Coast music as well. So I wasn't raised with that type of music. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I am familiar with it. But the type of music that MD and I were both raised on was the Motown sound. Right. Heavily Detroit blues yeah detroit blues a lot of instrumentation and if you don't know we actually have a guest that will be telling you a little bit more about the differences between the motown sound the philly sound and the funk style that you will find in the troutman music and a lot of those people came out of the midwest and while i was talking to our special guest i inquired i said hey listen i need for you to help me to understand why All of this music influenced generations of music afterwards. Like, what was it about the Midwest? Well, he told me 
it's simple. The Great Migration is why a lot of black people were in those areas, right? The Midwest and the North, because in the Great Migration, a lot of people came from the South up to the North and the Midwest area to have more opportunities for jobs, less direct racism, right? Because there right. were still some there. There was still some racism. It just was not as overt. And because it just provided way more opportunities for black people than the South did. Yeah, at that time, for sure. For sure. And so a lot of music and good music came from the South, but it migrated right up to the North and the Midwest. And a lot of people have been influenced by the different sounds. And there's a difference between the Motown sound, the Philly sound, and the funk funk sound, I should say. And so... Our guests will be able to tell you that right now. So stay tuned for that. I'm uh, Steph and MD's father, Pastor Broden. And uh, they asked me to, to give a distinction between the Motown sound and the Philadelphia sound. Uh, the, the major distinction was the use of strings and horns. Both labels use strings and horns, but the Philadelphia sound used a heavy dose of French horns. And if you remember the stylistic song, Betcha by Golly Wow, and um, that it starts with a, a French horn. And of course, the Delphonics who sang on the Philadelphia sound had a song that was called Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time? And it starts with the French horns. So they had more of a French horn sound as opposed to a brass sound with the with the horns on Motown and a heavy influence of strings, more orchestration with the Philadelphia sound. And then Motown had more of a sound that they would call the sound of youth. Um, young people and a lot of their songs from a lot of their artists uh, sort of addressed the young crowd and um, if you remember my girl uh, my baby uh, uh, Mickey's monkey by um, Smokey Robinson and and uh, and his group and so they had more of a sound that was addressing the teenagers and the youth of the time. Martha and the Valdellas, uh, they sang a song that was called Dancing in the Streets. And it was about young people having fun and listening to music. Delphonics had the same kind of emphasis, but it was more with that heavy orchestration. Heavy orchestration, the Delphonics, you had the Stylistics, the OJs. If you remember uh, Backstabbers, the very beginning of it, the introduction is a heavy orchestration uh, with strings and piano uh, and the horn. So it was, and then they come in, what you doing? Uh, smiling in your face and all the time they want to take your place. But it's about a, I guess a minute and a half or so in the introduction where this nothing but orchestration. Uh, the same thing with the stylistics. Um, they had a song that was called uh, People Make the World Go Round. And if you remember, it, it had xylophones, it had 
French horns and strings. Uh, people make the world go round. And then that sort of just at the very end of the song, you hear all that orchestration just goes on for about two or three minutes without singing. So that was the distinction between the two. And then the more gutsy sound or what we call street funk came from P-Funk. Uh, out of Ohio, and uh, the Funkadelics, and Parliament. And then the more soulful sound came from Stat, where you had uh, Sam and Dave, and you had uh, Otis Redding, and you had uh, a number of other artists that had that more street funk sound, a street soul sound, I should say. And um, a lot of our culture is wrapped up in music. Music is a strong influence in the African-American community. And as young people, we listen to a lot of music and music sort of was uh, the beginning of our day and the end of our day. We listen to music all the time. And so uh, the distinction, I think, between Motown and the Philadelphia sound was the orchestration and the emphasis on the French horns. And you get a real good picture of that when you listen to the Delphonics, Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time? And of course, um, the heavy orchestration is evident in the stylistics, as they sing. And Isaac Hayes, um, who was on stack, used a more of a soulful sound, but he also used orchestration because he was a musician. And so uh, and different sounds, um, that really highlighted the soulful sound of our culture. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Now that you've heard from our guest, which you now know was our father, we are going to get dive right into the Troutman family and why we think this story is so worthy of being featured. So grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening, but either way, let's get into it. So now the Troutman family definitely inspired this, this story. And so we want to dive into a little bit about their early years. Like what, what created them or like made them who they, who they were. Give you a little backstory. So, the Troutman brothers that we're going to feature today are Larry Lester, Roger, and Terry Troutman. Now, they grew up in a small town outside of Hamilton or outside of Dayton, Ohio, which was Hamilton, Ohio. And they grew up in a family of a total of 10 kids. That's right. You heard me. 10 kids. And now this is not really that unusual for that time and age. You know, growing up in large families back then was quite normal. My 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 dad uh grew up with uh, a lot of uh, brothers and si- and a sister and my mom had a lot of sisters and a brother. It, it's it was very normal to have more than 5 kids. Would you say, Steph? 
Oh, yeah, it's the boomer generation. That's what they call it. The Absolutely. boomer generation was a great boom in the generation. <laughs> in the, had a lot in of kids. The, right, had a lot of kids. And so the Troutman family was no different. It was 10 kids, and they lived in Hamilton in a small town and also in a small house. Their house only had two bedrooms, two bedrooms and one bath for 12 people. One bedroom was for the parents, and the other bedroom housed all 10 kids. Now, you may be sitting there trying to figure out how in the world did this work? And weren't they miserable? But they absolutely were not miserable. They felt like they had such a rich upbringing, such a rich childhood. And the reason that they said that is because they felt like they had all that they needed. As they described it on the Unsung documentary, one of the Troutman siblings stated that they felt like they had everything they needed, which was their mom, their sis, their siblings, their cousins, their aunts and uncles. They basically described their family. All they needed was family. And so I thought that was really very interesting and it just really warmed my heart because really when you have the right perspective about things, you understand you're very you're quite rich as well. But Rufus Sr., which was uh, the Troutman, Troutman's uh, father, he was a hard worker and he stilled, he instilled that work ethic in all of his kids. He worked at a paper mill and he drove a truck. And so he just really instilled in his in his children that it's important to work hard for what you want and what you need. And so they demonstrated that work ethic when they found their passion. Now, the first child that really kind of delved into the music world was Roger Troutman. And he was just at the age of three, just found this passion and love for instrumentation and for music that he just could not, like he grabbed a hold of and he could just not let it go. Uh, his uh, They described that he saw a guitar and was like I want that I want that and I can play that and he grabbed it and when he got a hold of that guitar he started playing it and I'm talking about guys like he started playing it like he knew what he was doing like he had some sort of training now this is a kid this is a this is a young kid at that and so it wowed the adults they just could not believe it specifically Rufus senior he he absolutely was just amazed at his son's talent that he started taking his son to to clubs to just show them off and to bet I bet my I bet you my son can play that song and so you know they're like no way this this little boy can play that but sure enough, he did. And so Rufus Sr. would come up on some coin and, you know, just the pride, right, of, you know, seeing your your young kid do something that is unheard of. He was very literally a musical genius, and he demonstrated that at a very young age. And so his brothers, who were older than him, wanted to get in on this action. They were like, well, you know, hey we want to get in on this music thing as well. And so they, and so they did, and they started what they started, what was called little Roger and his fabulous veils. And they went around Ohio, just touring and performing in talent shows and competitions. And, you know, back then that was quite common. And if you've seen the Michael or the Jackson five story or any of these stories, these backstories on a lot of those musical groups, you see that there is, back in that day, there was this 
just big boom of performing in talent shows, like even New Edition, you know, had, you know, they would perform in these talent shows to be discovered, so to speak, and they would compete. And one of the one of the sisters, one of the Troutman sisters, she stated that if they performed in a competition, if they performed in a talent show, they did not lose. So they were just top tier, number one, just going around developing their love and their passion for this music thing. And as they can continue to win and as they continue to tour, they continue to practice. And so that work ethic that Rufus Sr. instilled in them came out in their music. So they were like, I mean, if we, they said that if they weren't performing, then they were practicing. And so in order to give them an edge or an advantage or to just really pour into his kids desire their dream their gift he built a garage in the back of their house and he instilled you know he made sure that they he installed uh, electricity so that they could practice out of the house right like at all hours of the night and so they did the Troutman brothers they were constantly practicing constantly honing their craft and getting better and and it's important to, to note they were not trained they were not musically trained. Like nobody got with them and taught them how to play the guitar or the bass or the drums. They just did it. They just practiced and they learned it. And I just think I find that very inspiring. How about you, Steph? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it speaks to the the genius of, of God for me that somebody can literally pick up an instrument, have no formal training, and just dig right into that creative that creativity, which is just amazing. Like I know for us, we um and we we want to pay homage to who we knew personally because our I mean for the longest, and I feel still feel now our life is very much music plays a hallmark piece in our lives, and I think that's true for most people. But I just think it was more prominent in our lives. Um, but we had the pleasure of like watching a genius at work in our lives for like 15 plus years. <laughs> and I don't think, at least for me, I really didn't know. And uh, who we're referring to is Bernard Wright. Um, he is a musician or was a, mu- a musician and um, a songwriter, just everything. Everything. And he was very similar to what we're describing in Roger, uh, specifically Roger Zapp. I think all, I mean, Ro- not Zapp, Roger Troutman. I think all the Troutman brothers had this musical genius, but Roger just was like on another level with his ability, which he demonstrated at that very young age, picking up a guitar and just being able to just play it and like learn it and teach himself. And Bernard Wright was very similar to that. And another person that I think of that has that musical genius was Prince. Prince also was just one of those uh, musical creators that could pick up any instrument and just learn it self-taught and Bernard Wright was you know very close to our family and he recorded with me I recorded music uh, several years ago and just being able to watch somebody like that somebody like a Roger Troutman at work just be able to hear what you hear in your head that you're not even able to fully like express and they can pick it up and just turn it into greatness and that was very much the Troutmans and they were also inspired by 
those around them of that age. And so you had the James Brown, the Bootsy Collins, the Ohio players, George Clinton. They knew that in order for them to fulfill the dream that they had to be musical artists, they had to be as good, if not better than those individuals or those groups that they they looked up to on the scene. And it's not a knock or a, a, a dig at what is out today, right? I think everybody always talks about, man, you know, my generation, my music. But the music back then, it was it was one of those things that just was so prominent and so revolutionary at that time that it was so many greats that you look back at that they were inspired by. And so uh, in the... In the the night in the late nineteen seventies, they as they're honing their craft and trying to be as good as those that they looked up to, they changed their name. Remember, their name was Little Roger and his fa- fabulous veils. They changed that to Roger and the Human Body, and so they continued to to tour and continue to hone their craft. And Terry, he played the bass. He was he was he was like a young teenager at the time. Larry was the oldest brother and he played the congas and he also became their manager. He became the one that just really kind of helped them to get their gigs and sign it up. Roger was the lead vocals and he played any and every instrument, the keys and, and all things. I mean, Roger was just so absolutely gifted and talented. And then you had Lester who played the drums. They, And they brought in other people as well. But those were the core Troutman brothers that really led the way and and started it from the ground up. And so as they're continuing to tour and and just kind of get some, you know, some popularity on the scene in Ohio and the Midwest, really, they began to be discovered by Bootsy Collins. Bootsy Collins and George Clinton kind of heard who they were now Steph why don't you tell us a little bit in case you don't know in case you're sitting out there like who's Bootsy Collins you keep saying that who's George Clinton Steph remind or or remind or tell the people who they are all right so George Clinton and Bootsy are some of the main innovators of what we know as today as funk music especially george clinton so george clinton um has been inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame um he had a band called the parliaments the parliaments and the funkadelics he also had many other bands too but that may be one that you are used to or you've heard um he's responsible for hits like um atomic dog um I can't think of the other one that's really, really popular. But yeah, so um, he was very popular on the scene and he's out of North Carolina, but did a lot of work in Ohio. And Bootsy Collins was a part of his band. But before he was a part of George Clinton's The Parliament and the Funkadelics, he was a part of James Brown's band. And he was a bass guitar player. And I'm going to tell you, he's mean on that bass guitar. So you, you think of innovation and people who are already on the scene who had a platform when they went to one of Roger and Zapp's they weren't known as Roger and Zapp then but they went to Roger and his band's performance and they found they saw their saw them perform and heard their sound they were like oh George Clinton was like we got to get these boys on the scene 
Yeah, so you you guys know know Bootsy Collins. You may not know his name. You may not know George Clinton by by name, but you know their music, especially if you're Greek. Because like Steph said, Atomic Dog, that's Omega Sci-Fi, and then Flashlight, well, that's Kappa Alpha Psi. And so you guys have heard their music. You've been around it. Your parents know it if you're younger. But like Steph said, they heard Roger and the human body and they were like these boys they got something and so they invited them out to Detroit to mentor them and to record and just to kind of help them really get their footing like let's give you this next little boost and I love that they did that I love that they gave back because that's how we come up in the world really it's the people that we know it's networking and so uh, in the, in 1979, Roger and the human body, they, they packed on up their bags and they headed on to Detroit because these are some of their, like, these are the people that they have been inspired by. Like, to, to have Bootsy Collins and George Clinton reach out to them, they knew this was their one opportunity that they could not pass up. And so they get out to Detroit and they you know, start to record. And of course, Bootsy Collins and George Clinton, they get them a record deal with the, the with Warner Brothers. And they also convince them, like, come on, guys, we got to change the name. Roger and the Human Body is not a bad name, but it's not, it's not what we need. So they change their name to what we know them as the Zap Band. Or they were, I think, just called Zap. And... That actually is a Lester, I believe it was Lester, or no, Terry. It was Terry's childhood nickname. And so they, they called themselves Zap. And their first single that they released, you also know it, it was Mo Bounce to the Ounce. And this is Sigma Phi Beta's song. And so, but when this song hit the airwaves in, in the late, in the fall uh, or late 1980s, it just shot to the top of the billboards. I believe it hit number two on the billboard charts. But this song was like, un, it was unlike any other sound that anybody had heard at the time. Because although the talk box was not a new thing, it was the first time in music history that an artist featured the talk box as the center of the song. And that's exactly what Roger Zapp did. Roger, or Roger Troutman, Roger put that talk box in his mouth. And he, every time he opened his mouth throughout the song, you hear this talk box and it is just seamlessly blending in with this song. Mo Bounce to the Ounce. And this set them on a trajectory that would change not only the musical scene, but also their lives. Yeah, so that sound that she's referring to, I just want to go into a little bit more detail because that sound was so unique. It wasn't heard ever. So if you ever listen to a Roger Zap song, which we featured a couple on this episode, you'll hear that it has a lot of drums, like big drum sounds. Um, of course, it has a synthet- synthesized bass. 
It has guitar, congos, but it also featured hand claps. And we're not talking about hand claps that you could just get on a keyboard that was featured as a sound because they didn't have that then. They actually had to go in the studio and clap. And those hand claps are featured in the Zap songs that are so popular. Also, that talk box that MD was talking about, the talk box was invented by someone else. I can't even remember the name of the person who invented it. But as she already said, you know, he made this the focal point of the song and nobody had ever done that before. It was like the wildest thing you could probably ever hear because it kind of resembled techno, right? So it's just speaking to the fact that this combined a lot of genres of music. It combined R&B. It combined the funk that people had already heard of with Bootsy Collins and George Clinton. It combined, um, you know, techno and a little bit of rock, you know, just combined. It was a fusion of sounds and it was remarkable. It was something to see. So their their career took off into the stratosphere, which it was destined to do anyway. But the very next year, Roger made a solo album and he had a hit song called Heard It Through the Grapevine, was uh, which is a rendition of a song that Marvin Gaye sang. And so he made it more funky, more nice, and people just absolutely loved it. He also had a song called So Rough, So Tough. And as I already said, it was, it sounded like techno. It was just, it was a dream, honestly, to probably listen to those songs for the first time because no one had ever done it. So Roger was very into the making of his music. He was dedicated. Um, It almost, when I was looking at this unsung episode, but then when I watched this other documentary that has since been taken, taken down from the internet, it talked about how Roger would go into the studio And literally stay there for hours and days upon end creating music. And he would be totally fine. Like people would have to come in to get him out of the studio. And what that reminded me of is R. Kelly. He was one of those people that he would just like set up shop in the studio because that was he lived ate and breathed music. And I think that type of dedication is what you have to have to be great. When you think about a lot of the greats, regardless of what they're doing, whether it's, you know, Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan, they are living and breathing their talent. Absolutely, Steph. I think that is so, it's such a brilliant perspective because honestly, when you, what separates somebody from being good, and I'm talking about really good. So what separates somebody from being a really good artist, whatever sports work at whatever you want to insert subject here, what separates them from being good and great is that dedication is that extra. And whenever you listen or you hear people talk about who we consider greats, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, R. Kelly, what, who it prints, whoever you insert X, who you think is great. They always say about that person, even Beyonce, right? Like that they are just, they eat, breathe, breathe, sleep, drink. I mean, their whole time is set centered around this thing because they want to be great and I just think it's a it's does it's not surprising Steph when we heard that about him that that's how he was that he eat he ate breathed drank stayed in there for hours days people had to come in and say hey you gonna leave because that when you see his musical genius at work when you see his uh discography you're like yeah that makes sense 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that when I hear those things, whether it's Roger Troutman or Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, the three Michaels, Michael, Mike Tyson. Um, I just oh, I forgot think, to say Kobe. Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant. I mean, all the people that you think are at the top of their game. I think it, it inspires me because if you say you really love something, you say you really want it. You know, how bad do you want it, though? You know, so that's just a little, you know, bit of inspiration on your plate. But, you know, Roger handled the music. um, But so all his brothers were into it, too, because he actually taught all of his brothers how to play their instruments, which is so cool because he needed somebody to play with. So he was like, come on, let me teach y'all all the things. And they created music together. They wrote music together. And I mean, all of his brothers, Terry, Lester, um, Larry, I said Larry. So they they all created music together, but Larry really was like the manager. He was the person who had that business, you know, that business mind that could say, okay, let's put this together. Let's, you know, let's make sure all the ducks are, all of our ducks are in in a row as far as our business and make sure that it's right. And they had such a close relationship. People often would say they were two peas in a pod. And honestly, it was like one of the best, like, duos. Like when you think about music, you had somebody who was dedicated to the music, right? And then you had somebody who was like, all right, bro, I'm gonna make sure the business is straight, you know? So I think that that was just a match made in heaven when they were doing their business together. But Roger was always working. And the one thing that set Roger apart, not only was it his work ethic, but Roger was dedicated to not doing any drugs or any alcohol. And I think that's what set him apart, right? From that rock and roll lifestyle that you often hear people talk about, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Well, for Roger, it was just like music, music, and more music, right? And that really separated him from many other people that were his peers during the time because he really promoted that. And there was one person on Unsung who was from the church because most musicians, let's face it, and really, really good singers, they come from the church. And, you know, he said, I was coming into the music industry and I met Roger and I felt really at home because I never felt pressured to be a part of that lifestyle because it wasn't around Roger. So I have, I like, I made a home with him and I felt comfortable. I never felt like I had to pretend, but I just think, I think that speaks to how genuine and how authentic Roger was in general, right? So they're dealing with hits on top of hits on top of hits, y'all, because all the way through the 1980s, they are dominating the charts. I'm talking about they had hits in 81, 80, 82, 83. It was just hits on top of hits. And the one thing that Zap and Roger or Roger and Zap, what they made was feel good music. They, it was music that would make you happy, music that would make you move. You know, it was just upbeat, happy music. And so everybody loved their sound for that because you were guaranteed to come out better than when you came in. So in addition to having this mega music music career they also decided to become businessmen they wanted to invest they wanted to invest not only in to their family and taking care of their family they took it a step further and that was really spearheaded by Larry Troutman he started a limousine and bus service 
He formed Troutman Enterprises and Troutman Enterprises really was like, um, it was similar to like a government um, entity and that it would create homes for lower income people within Hamilton, Ohio. And so, you know, they would build the homes and then put those homes back into the community for the residents to have. And so they were just, to me, they were, they were just do-gooders. That's what I'm, yep. And I know that it's not a word, but they were, they were do-gooders in the community and they were making their money make sense for them and make sense for the community. I just think that speaks to not the, not only the work ethic that Rufus Troutman instilled in them, but like that, they were just good people at their core, you know? And I think that's so hard to come by ever these days, but probably even then too, because, you know, people who have good intentions and they also want to do good for other people, that's just a hard characteristic to come by anyway. So they were doing just all, all around, they were doing well for themselves. And as the 80s came and went, right, the 90s came and music started to shift a little bit, right? As music does, it, it it shifts, it changes, it's ever evolving, which is why it really is a young man's game. That's what they say. It really is a young man's game because it is always changing. It is ever evolving. But Roger Troutman, even though he kept producing albums, the sales slowed down, right? But Roger was such an innovator because he wanted to, you know, make a impact on music outside of his own legacy. And well, he did that when he teamed and jumped off the career of Shirley Murdoch. Shirley Murdoch is the woman who sings As We Lay. She made that such a mega hit. That woman has a voice beyond, okay? She is in my, you know, hall of fame. But Shirley really got her first big break from Roger on Computer Love. And what's so interesting about the song Computer Love <laughs> is that there were no computers around that could do the things that we do now, like social media, right? Like, that wasn't a thing. Computer Love, what? Like, who was doing that? I mean, MD, can you just, like, expound upon why that was so crazy but so accurate? It is, because when you, when you think about the time that that song came out, like, there was absolutely no social media nobody was dating on you know computers and yet he's talking about like computer love and like this just um on-screen love affair right and yes you we look at it through the lens of computers but really he's talking about the love he has for musical technology and like that's and so when you look at it and it reminds me you know Steph what it reminds me of Erica Badu, when she sings uh, that one song that we all think is like a love letter to, uh, you know, a, a guy, but really it's a love letter to music. Do you know the song I'm talking I about? Know, I know. I'm not connecting. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to remember it before the end of this episode, but it's, it's, it's a similar thing where you can see it from two different lenses. And especially because uh, we, when we listen to the song, we're thinking of, all the things computers can do. But in reality, he's talking about his love for music technology. And I thought that was so brilliant because you can see it both ways. And right. it's just an evolution of a song that will always be popular and always be great. Right. And I think it just speaks to his genius, right? Because I bet he didn't even know that 
people can look at it from a computer love like situation you find the love of your life <laughs> so it's just like when you think about you it just hit it Steph love of my life music love of my life oh love of my life you are my friend oh okay look, look. see so that I told you it was gonna come to me right look at God you so yeah that's love of my life is the similar like when Erica Badu was singing that song it's a love letter to music it's not a love letter to a man and and when you say that now I'm see I'm like piggybacking like Common has a song called I used to love her and Kicks he's on that song Love of My Life there you and go. I used to love her is a song about hip hop. It's just you know what I'm saying it's the right. duality it's of it all. Love it all. That's why we love music. Yeah, yeah, it's the duality. We love it. We love it. But he created the song Computer Love. He also and Shirley Murdoch is featured on that song. So is Charlie Wilson, by the way. And now that I say that, you probably can hear Charlie's voice on that song as well. Um, the other song that he made that was like in the late 80s, early 90s was I Want to Be Your Man. And I have to say that prior to um, just, I mean, I knew about computer love, right? And I knew more bounce to the ounce. But when I found out, and you probably be like, girl, you late. But when I found out about I Want to Be Your Man, that song, it's because I fell in love with Love and Basketball. Facts. And Facts. Like, I know I probably heard that song prior to Love and Basketball. Sure. I'm sure I did. Because th- my dad in music, I know I heard that song prior to. But the when I fell in love with that song, was absolutely Love and Basketball. And if you know me and Steph, you know that's like one of our favorite all-time movies. We can quote it like the back of our hand. Oh, yeah. And have to watch it every year at least once. So just refresh myself on it. Okay, okay. So let's we get sidetracked. Let's get right back into it. So yeah, he's responsible for like, you know, Shirley Murdoch's career, as I said. And just like, although he understood music was changing, he was always willing to pivot and shift um, so that he could still be a part of the innovation, right? Because music is always changing. And as time went on, the mid early 90s the economy had shifted it changed and Larry Troutman they had so much success success with their construction business with their limousine and bus services but as the economy changes right what used to be booming and what used to be popping may no longer be and a lot of entrepreneurs like they were find themselves in this problem or find themselves with this quandary right they're trying to figure out okay the houses aren't really selling anymore. The economy has changed. People are losing their jobs. What do we do now? So they found themselves in a position where they actually had to file for bankruptcy, which people do that all the time, right, MD? Like filing for bankruptcy, honestly, is not the worst thing in the world. Absolutely. And especially not businesses. It's actually quite common. And sometimes when we think of bankruptcy, I think as a layperson, we think of bankruptcy as I have zero money. Uh, that's not what bankruptcy is. And it's just, you know, where you have more debt than you have assets or I might be saying that the wrong way, but either way, it, it's not, it's really not uncommon. And sometimes it's a strategy. And so you have to get with your lawyers and your tax people and they will tell you, Hey, this actually is probably going to be really beneficial for you. I mean, when you think about it, like in 2000, in the two, in 2008, when we had the big, huge recession that we're currently in now, now, even though people don't want to say we're in a recession, but nonetheless, in 2008, when we had the recession that we had, almost all the big fortune 500 companies filed for bankruptcy like Ford, GM. I mean, these are like multi-million dollar companies and they're filing for bankruptcy. So it's absolutely quite common. 
And so they found themselves in that position in 1992, and they were $4 million in debt. And although it's very common, I think it has to be said that that is a lot of stress, right? Because especially for Larry Troutman and Roger, right? They were not only responsible for their own families, but they were responsible for other families too, right? And so they're, they're trying to figure out how to pay pay other people's bills, right, that they have in their own personal family, and then they run a business, so they're trying to pay those people their actual paycheck. And so that's just a lot of stress, a lot of stress. So in this bit of a transition that they're in, trying to figure out the business side for Larry Troutman, and then Roger trying to pivot to the ever-changing and evolving music uh, genre, they're just at a transition. And inside of that transition, Roger decides that you know, I think I want to do something different. I think I I want to not necessarily leave my brother, right, and no longer have him in any of my business dealings, but I want to do something different. I want to expand my artistry, and that's going to look different than what it has been in previous years. Now, that's one position, and I want you to ponder that, but... Larry Troutman's daughter, who was featured on the Unsung episode about Zap and Roger Band, said that she felt like or alluded to the fact that Larry Troutman had been running her uncle's career for 30 years. And his job was to basically, you know, wave a red flag and say, hey, here's my brother. Here's our band. Look at what he can do. He's great. He's wonderful. And that became his identity, so to speak. That's what he had done for 30 years. That's what he was great at. And then you have Roger who comes in and says, hey, I think I want to change this. I want this to look a little different. Well, that would cause anyone to maybe stress a little bit or maybe to be uncomfortable because the thing about it, and I say this often to people, is that change is uncomfortable, but it's necessary, right? So even though you might have been doing something for the past 30 years, you may need to pivot and shift and look at it from another vantage point, right? And I'm not saying that we all can get there as quick as others, but these were the two thought processes that were going on it was Rogers on Rogers end it was like I want to expand I still want to have something to do with my brother I still want to have something to do with our businesses but I just want to step out on my own and then on Larry's end well that's all he had been doing and so to do something else it just was a little bit shaky and on top of that he also has these myriad of business problems that he's having to endure was happening in the 90s and so that's why I want you to kind of think upon and also when you take a look at our poll for today I want you to have that thought processing process in your mind and please respond openly and honest as you can, because I think a lot of times we're trying to be so politically correct that we cannot just say what we feel. Because sometimes, you know, you just need to say it, right? So I want you guys to really think about that. You know, I always give you guys a question during the episode that I want you to ponder and think upon as you're listening. So the 90s come around and it's hip hop, baby. Hip hop is here and it's an interesting scene because right at this time in the 90s, we got Biggie 
and we got Pac, and we are in the golden era of hip-hop, my favorite era of hip-hop. I know it's arguable, but I absolutely love the golden era of hip-hop. So their sound was very popular. If you think about Snoop Dogg, you cannot talk about funk music because he was so influenced by it. He actually said that four of a five-song demo tape featured Roger and Zap because that's how much he loved them. But you have to understand that the reason why their sound was so popular is because of those bass drums and those hand claps and that synthesized guitar that you hear frequently on their track. It is a really good song to be sampled and behind a rapper, it just, it complements the rapper. It just does. So you might be asking, okay, so what songs were sampled? Well, Biggie's Going Back to Cali samples a roger song tupac keep your head up samples a roger song and in 1996 dr dre who is arguably one of the best producers in hip-hop sampled a beat that featured roger not just his music but also featured robert in the talk box that we know and love it's called california love and that was in 1996 and You just got to go listen to it. You just got to go listen to it. Even if you know what I'm talking about, just go back and listen to it now that you have the context of everything that you know about Roger Troutman, okay? So he was just really honestly in another era of his career. That's what I will say. That in the 90s, he was on his way up because everybody, once they heard him on that 1996 California Love, which was nominated for a Grammy and sat on the charts for I don't know how many weeks, (laughs) People were like, oh, shoot, we got to have Roger come and be on the top box on my song. You know, it just it created more buzz. And so I I will say that I feel like he was going and transitioning into being introduced to this new generation and even creating new music. Yeah. You know, Steph, who I think about when I hear you talk about this transition of Roger's new career, which I think is you're absolutely accurate. He was not only on his way up being featured, but that was about to spearhead his new I like not identity, but his new, I'm gonna say new identity to that generation, right? And you know who I think about? Charlie Wilson. Because I really think Charlie Wilson has done an amazing job of that transition as well. Like he's made himself relevant to our generation. Like although Charlie Wilson is my father's generation, like Charlie Wilson is also our generation. You go to a Charlie Wilson concert, which I plan to try to do when he comes here to, te- to, to Texas. You will sit in the audience and see both old and young heads because he has transcended, you know, that age gap. And I think that is exactly the trajectory that Roger Troutman was on because of Biggie and Snoop and Dre. They were reminding this new generation of who he was. For sure. I mean, I definitely think he was at that point where um, I've heard here recently in an interview, it was like, you've lived nine lives and not that you've literally led nine lives, but you've had all these different um, transitions in your life, right? Like, and he was back in the 80s, he was this Roger Troutman, but in the 90s, he was becoming another Roger Troutman that would be known to other generations as something not completely different, but as something different than what the previous generation saw him. So 
I mentioned to you before I started to tell you about how he was starting to make himself known in the 90s about the shift that was happening between him and his brother. And that kind of two peas in the pod was starting to look not so much, right? And their relationship was a little shaky. But none of the family members really know truly what happened. And the truth is, neither do we. But what we do know is that on April 25th, 1999, Roger Troutman was shot four times behind his studio in a back alley and he was left for dead, bleeding out. And just a few short blocks away, his brother, Larry Troutman, car was found crashed into a tree and he had suffered a gunshot wound to the head and he was deceased and so Roger died at the hands of his brother and as crazy as that is I think what is even crazier is that his family or the Troutman family because we're dealing with two brothers they were absolutely and completely heartbroken devastated all the adjectives that you can possibly think about that would describe this situation and Roger and Larry Troutman's sister both accounted for what they were doing when they found out this news and I thought this was interesting how one of the sisters recounted the story she said to know what I was doing at the time that Roger died is to know what I was doing on 9-11 because that's how much that was important like that's how important that date is to them and I've said this on previous episodes before when you know about trauma you know exactly what you were doing at the point of trauma it's like your mind takes a snapshot and you'll forever remember it and the same is true for Lester and Terry they both remember exactly what they were doing and actually Lester received a phone call from Shirley Murdoch And when they found out that Larry was responsible, I mean, can you imagine? I just want you for a second just to think about your siblings and to know the siblings who are the closest. That's what I'll say. To know the siblings who are the closest. And then you receive news that not only did one sibling die, two, and one sibling took out the other. And so they're just trying to grapple with these two realities that exist you have Larry Troutman's kids who rush over to the hospital and are crying on Roger Troutman's body apologizing profusely that their father took their uncle and the older sister of Larry Troutman said she said I had to pick up my baby sisters and tell them this don't have nothing to do with this this has nothing to do with us and we're sorry and we're remorseful but the truth of the matter is is we didn't pull that trigger and Roger Troutman's family his son appeared on the episode and Roger Troutman by the way was definitely a lover boy he never married but he had 12 children (laughs) so he had a lot of love going around and one of his children um, got on and recounted that when he found out who killed his father he changed his last name he no longer goes by Troutman. He goes by his mother's maiden name. Because for him, it was like, if this is what family means, I want zero parts of it. And I think that both narratives, both feelings can be true. 
So they buried both Roger and Larry Troutman together in a dual ceremony and then buried them right next to each other. But what remains is the legacy of Roger Troutman and his band, Zap. The reality is that he was an innovator and Larry Troutman was the heartbeat of that band and of that family. And putting aside, and it's a big thing to put aside, but putting aside that Larry murdered his brother, that legacy, who Roger was and his music and all the things that he gave so graciously to music stands the test of time. He's one of the most sampled artists out here, as well as Bernard Wright when it comes to hip hop. They are some of, and James Brown, they are some of the most sampled musicians. And that just says a whole lot within itself, because guess what? Those samples are still being sampled today. That is the end of the tragic story of Roger and Larry Troutman. And just when you thought this story couldn't get any stranger, well, it does. Because I mentioned before that there is this ghost that haunts the Kennedy family. And I found that same ghost in this story. Just four years later, after Roger had been killed, his son, Roger Troutman II, also known by the surname of Lynch, suffered a serious head injury that led him to being in a coma. He died on January 3rd, 2003, at the young age of 33. And stranger than that, his younger brother, Brent Lynch, was arrested for the murder of his ex-girlfriend, Carolyn Liette, in 2012. He is now serving 32 years in prison. But we have to fast forward because we come right back to Roger Troutman II. In January 1st of 2020, Roger Troutman II's daughter by the name of Alexis Alaji Lynch was found deceased in a hotel room from an accidental drug overdose. She was just 21 years old and she was actually a rapper who went by the name of Lexi Alaji. The Troutmans have experienced tragedy and heartbreak that many of us will never see in our lifetime. And you just have to ask yourself, what is going on? Why have they been hit with all of these unfortunate events and tragic murders and situations within their lifetime? That is the story of Roger and Larry Troutman and the Zap Band. All right, moving right into our takeaway, which is I think where we can really kind of get into the meat of our opinions in this case. MD, go ahead and tell me what you think. Well, this case, it's just, I will just, I don't even know if I really have an opinion, Steph. I think I'm going to have to really kind of piggyback off you and just kind of let's have a dialogue here more so like we do offline when it's just you and I talking about the case. I think that's kind of more what I would like to do on this one. But I just want to say that this episode of Unsung, which if you don't watch Unsung, it's one of the 
it's one of the shows that my family we watched <laughs> together we just because it just shows you how much we love music and we love and we also love history and that's true for every single one of my my siblings and it's true for my mom and my dad but it's one of to me one of the best unsungs I saw because I just didn't know a lot about the Troutman family I I knew you know this band I knew who they were but I didn't know all the music that they did I didn't know Roger Troutman's legacy and impact that he had on music today and when you understand that it's just it's so eye-opening and I'll just say I just think it's so devastating that whatever happened you know in that moment had to have such profound consequence right like whatever argument that was whatever animosity that existed in that moment between Larry and Roger the consequence was so profound and so lasting and I think what my takeaway from that is (laughs) that you that you really need to step back from emotion right because what you feel in one moment is not what necessarily will last forever. And you see that in this situation because Larry took Roger's life. He shot him four times and he couldn't even live with that for 24 hours. He couldn't even live with that for an hour. He literally drove two blocks away and immediately killed himself. Because as soon as he realized what he had done, out of anger, out of immense emotion, it was like, I'm sure this overwhelming, what did I just do? Two peas in a pod is how they described him. He just killed his best friend, not just his brother, his best friend. And for what? Because we'll never know what the what's are. We can only assume, we can only speculate, right? for the fact that he wanted to move on, for the fact that he didn't agree with my idea, for the fact that he was trying to do things I didn't want to do. Money, whatever it was, right? Like it just was not worth it. And it's it's just so unfortunate because what he stole was not only, and, and it, what he stole was big, right? Like what he stole was not only, you know, his his children's father, his cousin's uncle, his parents' son. He also stole away from us as consumers, right? We didn't get to see, we didn't even get to see the the complete brilliance of where he could have gone with music. He was, he was right there on the cusp of giving us probably some, some greats, you know? I mean, he gave us some greats, but like he was about to, he was about to probably change the game. And, and now that's forever lost, right? Because of a moment of intense emotion. And what I try to tell my children and what I say to, you know, f- close family and friends is that, you know, emotions are fleeting. They change with the wind, which is why you should not make decisions out of emotions. You really got to separate it. Because what you feel today may not be what you feel tomorrow. What you feel in hour two is not necessarily what you feel in hour ten. And so you got to remove yourself from it and try to be more analytical and thoughtful of it. You know, and it's just so unfortunate. And we may never know. We will definitely never know the scope of what happened. But I do think the family probably has more insight on the tension that existed between the two at the time. And they're just 
their closed lip about it. And that's, you know, hey. You know, I mean, as a person, I want to know. But at the same time, you know, it, I, if it were me and my family, would I say something? Would I be closed with? Probably. Probably. I probably would. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with you. I think uh, my, my takeaway is like twofold. Um, my biggest takeaway is what a gift Roger Troutman was to all of us. Right. And so what it encourages me and the people around me and you, a listener, should also be encouraged. But why it's why that when I put out that commercial that says you you've been wanting to start a podcast, haven't you? I know you did. And I encourage you guys to start it. It's not because I'm just trying to get out a sponsor ad. Okay, it's a little bit of that. But honestly, it's because we're here to inspire each other, right? Like on such a bigger scale, like we're here to you know, help each other, inspire one another to be our best selves. And Roger Troutman has influenced and will continue to influence generations with his gift. And so I just was completely inspired by finding out more about his career. I knew maybe a fraction of what I found out through my research. And I wish that I could share with you guys the other YouTube that I Uh, research but they have taken it down for reasons I don't even really know but that had so much more information um, that you guys could devour and enjoy but that's my first takeaway Roger Troutman was an absolute gift and it is my humble opinion and my pleasure to be able to learn about him my other takeaway is you know when you're working with family I think that it's probably a privileged thing right especially if you trust your family um like larry and roger obviously at least at one time once did but i think it can have a lot of nuances and it can get sticky like probably faster than it would with somebody who isn't your family (laughs) to be honest because you do have a lot of that emotion empty that you just spoke about probably more so because they're your family you feel like you have these expectations for your family Um, but I think when I talk about the, the two thought processes that were going on at the time when they decided to make a change, a transition, a shift, the one thing that I can say is that you have to be in this life. You need to be comfortable with change. You have to be comfortable with change because everything will change. And that is a promise. You can guarantee it. Take it to the bank cash that mug in because the one thing in this life is you're going to have trouble and you're going to have change okay Jesus said the first one Steph's saying the second one and so I think that we have to be adaptable to that change and I think that's where even though we won't know as MD said we won't know what happened we can speculate the, the family has said the same thing the same rhetoric that I'm saying we can speculate we'll never know the only three people that know is Larry and Roger and Jesus Yes, that is all true. But I think the one thing that we can take away and say is that, you know, we do need to process and we do need to be okay with change and to know that that it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Whatever that change may mean, it's going to be okay. And no, nobody but Jesus can tell you that ending about how it's going to be okay, but it's going to be okay. And so it was just a pleasure and an absolute treat for me to combine the two things that I love the most, history and music together, and combine that in an episode for you guys so that you can learn a little bit more and, you know, know a little bit more about 
the rich history of black culture as it relates to music. Y'all, when I tell you we have pioneered many genres of music that we do not get credit for. Including country? Country, rock and roll, R&B, blues. I mean, rap. I'm just saying. So it, it's, I mean, it's like, to be honest, like I'm literally, I literally feel like I gave you a black history episode in, in November. You know what I mean? Like that's how dope that is. So we hope that you guys have enjoyed this episode. MD, did you want to say anything else? Just share it. I think this is going to be one of the best episodes we've done and I hope you guys enjoyed it. We put a lot of heart and soul into it. So we want you guys to share if you care, like Steph says. And tune in next week. Yes. Uh, before we do that, um, we have a segment called our polls and questions. And so last week, um, we were able to feature a story about Yolanda Lala Brown, which is another story that many people haven't heard about. And if you have, I featured a little bit more information about music in there as well. And I asked a question in that episode. And so, MD, I'm going to ask you the same question. I had someone tell me that they believe that the first ways that we learn is through singing and through dancing. Do you believe that's true, i.e. the alphabet song? Dancing, I don't have an example. Do you believe we learn to talk and to walk by singing and dancing? I definitely don't know about the dancing part, but I can tell you that there is a lot of truth to singing. We not only sing the ABC song, but we we use sing-song voice when we talk to our kids, right? So when you're talking to your babies, you're like, oh, hi, baby. Like, and so you're using this sing-song voice uh, when, you're, when you're talking as well as singing. And so absolutely language, a lot of language development, which not just includes talking, but a lot of language development is centered around music. Yes, and so you guys said yes, 50% of you, 52% of you agreed that is how we learn. 5% said no, 21% said maybe, and another option that I put, no, but I get what the person meant. And that was 21%, and I agree with that. Like, I'm like, I don't know if I agree fully with that statement, but I understand where you're trying to go. I get it. I get it. So um, I'm going to read a couple of our questions that you guys typed a response out to and I asked did you know about Lala Chantel said I remember her and I always wondered what happened to her I loved her voice so much she could sing okay not just sing sing um G mama's underscore baby said yes I heard her on life's song I loved her voice and was hurt when I found out what happened to her I feel like she was taken before her prime she could really sing and would have been big definitely unsung when I think of unsung I think of Lala Brown for sure Kiki said I heard her feature on life song but I wasn't aware of any projects after that so 
that is our polls and questions segment. And I asked a couple of questions if you are a part of our Facebook fam, if you are part of our Instagram family. I asked some questions on our stories just to see what you guys want us to highlight moving forward since we are officially done with our murder in music. And you guys overwhelmingly said that you want to see a lot more cold cases and serial killers. So we're going to figure it out. Cold cases, we got you. Serial killers, I think we've covered a lot, but I'm sure there are more that we can cover. So, yeah. Thanks for voting. Thanks for participating. As always, um, share if you care this episode with friends and family. Shout out to everybody who has continued to be a part of our Perks Club, which I call our subscription program. You can become a paid subscriber and get early access to this episode. So, or in episodes that will be featured before we introduce it to our main platform. So, just want to say thank you for everybody who is definitely supporting us monetarily we appreciate it and we love everybody else too like no special treatments we love you all until next time friends this is murder in the black bye